Well, last week we began a series in First Peter, which we saw was a letter that was written to believers in the first century that were dealing with dark and difficult times. And we saw that the one writing the letter was Peter, the Apostle Peter. And we talked about what this title apostle means, that it was one who was sent. It spoke of an ambassador who would share the good news of the one they represented, in this case, the good news of the gospel that God has given us. But I want you to think for a moment about who Peter was before he was this pastor, who Peter was before God had him put pen to paper and write this letter to us. You remember Peter was a fisherman. Now, when I say a fisherman, it's not like many of the weekend warrior types that may be among us who have a nice boat with a little trolling motor and we have a a rod and reel in our hand that we kind of cast around. Peter would have been more like the guys you see on the deadliest catch, the ones who are battling the wind and the waves trying to make their living off the water. Peter would have been a big, burly man. This is a guy who would drag a large wooden boat into and out of the water. This was a man with calloused, strong hands who would uh, dip oars into the water and move that boat along. He would raise and lower sails. He would cast out nets, and he would drag them in by hand. Uh, Peter is a guy that if you read in Luke Chapter 5, you see, when he first came to realize who Jesus Christ was as the Son of God, remember, he was there in Peter's boat. Peter had just had this miraculous catch of fish, and Peter was so overwhelmed that he dropped to his knees, and he said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is Peter, a guy who was more than just a little rough around the edges. Friends, he was like a chainsaw that would cut through people. You remember, Peter's the guy who whipped out a sword and cut off the servant's ears when they, ear when they came to arrest Jesus. He was the guy that stared down an entire contingent of soldiers. Now, the reason I'm telling you these things is because I think that sometimes we'll read a letter like this. And we picture this guy who's maybe this tiny little guy sitting in posh, safe surroundings, who's spouting these pious platitudes about, oh, just trust in God. Everything's going to be fine when he's nice and safe. I want you to remember, Peter was at ground zero. Peter was writing from Rome where the persecution under Nero was being led. Peter was a guy who would be martyred for his faith in a few years after writing this letter. And as Peter is thinking about all of these things, he writes in this letter that because Jesus died and rose from the dead, he knew that as a Christian, he didn't have to fear, but he could have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And as Peter wrote this for us, he was so excited that the words just came pouring out of the pen as he put those words on paper under the direction of the Holy Spirit. If, if you are a parent who's ever had a kid come up to you, one of your children, so excited they can barely catch their breath and the words are just pouring out and you're like, take a breath. It's okay, slow down, use your words, tell me what you want me to hear. Uh, This is Peter, because in the original Greek text, verses 3 through 12 are one single sentence. Now, the English translators have broken it up for us, so today we're only going to be looking at verses 3 through 9, but I invite you to turn there and look at these words that Peter has for us to encourage us. He says in 1 Peter 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, Peter begins by saying, blessed. And the Greek word used here is eulogetos. And if that word sounds familiar to you, it's because it's where we get our English word eulogy. And a eulogy is something we give at a funeral. It's where a person has, has died and you speak about their life, where you praise uh, the man or the woman for how they've lived their life. And as Peter says, blessed be God, what he's doing here is praising God for what he's done for us. He says, for his great mercy. Now, to understand what his mercy is for us, I want to give you a few definitions. The first one is justice. Justice has been defined as getting what we deserve. When we do something wrong, when we break a law, whatever uh, wrong we've done, there's a consequence. So justice is getting what we deserve. Now, mercy is not getting what we deserve. Mercy would be that you didn't suffer the consequences of what you deserve. But God goes even farther than that, and he adds to it grace. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And so as Peter is talking here, he he says we don't get what we deserve. Justice would be that we would suffer for our sins because Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, what does this word sin mean? Well, it was literally an archery term that means to miss the mark. If I were to give you 100 arrows and set up a target that had a bullseye on it, and I were to ask you to shoot 100 arrows at that center bullseye, and 99 of your arrows hit right in the bullseye, but just one, one arrow hit outside of that center ring, when the archery judge would walk up, they would write on your scorecard, you sinned because you missed the mark. You were not perfect. You didn't have 100 out of 100 arrows hit the bullseye. You fell short of perfection. And other than Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate, who walked this earth and never sinned, there's not a person who has ever done that. And because of that, we all deserve the penalty of our sin. And that penalty is found in Romans 6.23. It says, for the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn. How we live our life doesn't earn our way into heaven. The wages of sin is death. It goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When Peter says God has shown great mercy to us, it means God did not give us what we deserved, which is eternal separation from him. That's what death is. We all die a physical death. If the rapture doesn't occur first, we will all die physically. And death is defined as the separation of our eternal soul from our physical body. So there's this separation. That's what death means. And when God speaks of the second death in the book of Revelation, he says the second death is where some will be cast into the lake of fire. That's what we call hell. So there is a first death, a physical death, and then there can be a second eternal death, this second separation from him. Now, the good news is God doesn't give us what we deserve. 
And he goes even beyond that to give us what we don't deserve, which is eternal life. Because it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And so God gives us what we don't deserve, what we haven't earned, eternal life when we accept God's gift to us of his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 1, 3, when he says we are born again to a living hope. As I said, there are two deaths. The first birth we had is a physical birth. We've all been born. We're all alive. But God offers us the opportunity to be born again. Last Sunday, I had the opportunity uh, after this service, the second service, to stand up here with a family who had brought their young daughter up. And they, uh, I got to tell this young girl, happy birthday. Now, it wasn't happy birthday as in her physical birthday. It was her spiritual birthday. Because they said our daughter has been talking to us about Jesus and, and we believe she's accepted the Lord as her Savior. And we walked through the gospel and we went through and she prayed up here to receive Jesus Christ as her personal Savior. So I was able to say to her, happy birthday. This is your spiritual birthday. She was already born once physically and now she was born a second time eternally. And so... For us, all of us will die physically. And if you've been born just once, friends, then you will die twice. You will die a physical birth, you will die a physical death, and then you'll have a second eternal separation from God. But if you've been born twice, physically and born again, as Peter is talking about, then you will only die once. You'll only die physically, and then you go into the presence of the Lord where you are more alive than you've ever been before. Second Corinthians 5, 8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And this is what Peter is talking about here. Jesus Christ told us in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And this future life we're promised is this living hope. And as Peter uses this word hope, I want you to understand it's not like a wishful thinking. Like, oh, I I hope this or that is going to happen or this or that won't happen. Rather, it's this firm assurance based upon the fact that Peter's seen the resurrected Lord. The Bible defines faith for us in Hebrews 11.1, telling us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, for Peter... He has seen the resurrected Lord. Remember, after Jesus uh, was buried and he rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500 witnesses. And the scriptures tell us there was a special appearance just to Peter because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Peter thought it was over. Peter thought God was done with him. But Jesus recommissioned Peter in John 21. And he had denied Jesus three times and he was recommissioned three times. Jesus said, I'm not done with you, Peter. And Peter is now sharing the good news of the resurrection. And it's good news for us because 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, God who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. In verses 4 and 5, Peter gives us further assurance telling us we will obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Now, some of you may receive or have received an earthly inheritance. An earthly inheritance is where you maybe have a relative or a friend, a loved one who has passed on, who left you something here uh, in terms of money or property or other things. Now, I don't care how big the inheritance is that you receive. It really has no lasting value. I mentioned last week how I will go overseas to teach in seminaries. And one of the places that I've had the privilege of going multiple times is to Russia to teach in Moscow Theological Seminary. And the first time I was over there was in 1991. And if you've ever been uh, to a foreign country, you know you have American dollars or whatever your currency is for those who are watching around the world. And you will exchange that money uh, for the local currency. And in Russia, it was the ruble. And when I was there in 1991, there was a free fall of the ruble. So all of the locals told us, only exchange what you need uh, for right now. Because at 3 o'clock today, it may be three times, you know, different in the exchange rate. And so uh, here you'll see a picture of a C note, a 100 ruble note that I got in 1991 from Russia. And you've maybe heard the saying, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Well, that's the case with this currency. Because the ruble was devaluing so fast that shortly thereafter, they just declared the the currency null and void. And so while it's a pretty souvenir, uh, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Now, I went back again in 1993, and they had a new ruble. And here you'll see another 100 ruble note. And guess what happened to that ruble note as well? It also devalued. It's also worthless. And so, again, it's not worth the paper it's printed on. Now, I share this with you because some of you uh, have uh, investments or dollars or other things, and you're thinking, well, with the free fall, uh, the out-of-control spending maybe that's going on here in America, you're afraid that whatever it is you own is one day going to be worthless. Well, whether or not the dollar ever collapses in our lifetime or the future, it will be worthless one day. All the stuff we have here on earth is going to pass away. Now, I want to remind you, if that's discouraging to you, that what we talked about last week is our home is not here on earth. Our home is in heaven. Philippians tells us our citizenship is in heaven. And we talked about what it means to be a believer in Christ, that while we are here on earth, we have a responsibility to represent uh, God and share the good news. But brothers and sisters in Christ, our home is in heaven. We're just passing through. And so as Peter is talking here about what we will have one day in our eternal destiny, he says, when it comes to your inheritance in heaven, it is secure. He literally says you can just take that to the bank. And he tells us five different things. If you like to write in your Bible or highlight things, then circle these words. Because it it is this, Peter is telling us just how secure what we have. He starts with by saying it's imperishable or incorruptible. It literally means nothing can ruin it. He says it is undefiled. This means it cannot be stained or cheapened in any way. Peter goes on to say that it will not fade away. Uh, If if you were to go to my study at home, uh, I've got a couple of diplomas hanging on the wall of programs, degrees I finished. And I have one from 1987 Uh, hanging there on the wall, that if you look at the signature line where the president and academic dean and other people have signed it, the lines are all blank. 
because the ink that was used has literally faded away. You have to get right up and look and see where there was kind of an impression of where they signed it. Now, the degree is still good, at least I think it is, but there, it's faded away. There's no longer anything there to show uh, that I earned it other than the paper that I have. Now, what Peter tells us here is that will never happen with our eternal inheritance. He says it can never be lost. It can never lose its value. In 1 Peter 1.4, it says it is reserved for us in heaven. The Greek word that is used here means to watch, to guard, to protect, to reserve. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 6.20, to store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. What he's telling us here is our salvation and all that comes with it is secure. Friends, there is no better bank vault than the one we have in heaven that is watched over and guarded by God. Now notice not only is our inheritance guarded, but we are as well because verse 5 says we are protected. Some translations say kept or shielded. The word used here literally means to garrison. And it was used, it was a military term that described a garrison that would be brought into the walls of a city to protect it. Right now we have uh, an illustration of that is the capital has uh, got about 25,000 troops surrounding it and in it and protecting uh, that structure. And so there's this picture of a resident army there protecting And what we have as believers is better than any earthly army. What we have is God himself protecting us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord, and the Spirit of God dwells within you? We have God himself resident within us. And Peter says, not only is what we have in heaven one day protected for us and secure, but he says, we as Christians, as we go through this world and all the hardships, we are garrisoned about by God. We are protected by his very presence. And as Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 1.5, he uses a verb form in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing action that's happening right now. Again, there are five beautiful pictures that Peter gives us here of the security of our salvation, that God is with us and the blessings he has are secure and waiting for us when we get home to heaven. And when it comes to your salvation, you can never lose it. You did nothing to earn it, so you can do nothing to lose it. God purchased it for us. And in John 10, 28 through 29, Jesus gives us again this picture of our security in him. He says, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you can picture the the nail-scarred hand of Jesus. And you and I have been placed into his hand when we come to him by faith, and he says, I've closed my hand around you. And then he says, God the Father has come and closed his hand around as well. And he says, nothing can snatch you away. You can't pry apart God's fingers. Read Romans 8. It begins in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends at the end of chapter 8 by telling us that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor any created thing. There's this whole resume and list. And he says, nothing can keep you from from me. Nothing can take you away because I, I have you in my hand. 
This word in 1 Peter 1.4 where we read that it's reserved or kept, it's in the perfect tense. And what that means is it's a completed action. What God started for us, he will complete. We saw that last week. If you were here, you'll remember we looked at Romans 8.30. And in Romans 8.30, it told us, uh, and he, it says, in whom he predestined, these are Christians, he says, and those whom he has predestined, he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. You remember we talked about election and predestination, uh, which is what Peter talked about in verses 1 and 2, and, and how God called us, that's the election And it says that God will justify us. That's when we come to faith in Christ. And then there's this process of living called sanctification. And when we step through the gates of heaven, we are glorified. We are completed. We are made perfect. Our sin nature is done away with. And we are there uh, perfect as we will be for all eternity in the image of Christ. And what Peter is telling us here is all that remains for that, remember it's in the perfect tense. It's already done in God's uh, timeline. He says all that is to happen for you and I is to see the actual uh, revelation of that on that day when we experience our heavenly homecoming. This is what 1 Peter 1.5 means when it says our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's like lifting up uh, a tablecloth where there's a table underneath. The table is there. You've just hidden it from view. And when you lift up that table cloth, you can see what is already there. And this is the picture of that day coming when we will see it as we take possession of what is already reserved for us in heaven. We're just waiting for that day where we get to check in and enjoy the the room, uh, our, our home in heaven that God has prepared for us. Now, as Christians, that's our future, but we're living in the present. And so Peter isn't just saying, oh, think ahead to what is coming. What he says now in verses 6 through 7 is how we're to live in the midst of the time that we find ourselves. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see that what Peter's doing here, he's just, he's moving from ecstasy as he says, brothers and sisters, look at what is coming to agony. Where he says, look at, the world in which we live. Look at the things you're facing. And he says, whether in ecstasy or agony, we can rejoice. We can, we can rejoice. Now, remember, I said in my introduction to this message, I wanted you to remember this wasn't just the empty, pious words of a guy who was safe, sitting on the beach, fanning himself with a, a bunch of banknotes in the Bahamas saying, oh, count it all joy, you know, because life was good for him. Peter was in the midst of the suffering and the trials himself. In fact, as he talks about these trials, in verse 6, he uses a word that is translated as distressed. Some of your translations may have the word heaviness. It's, It's a word that is very intense, and it means to experience grief or pain. This is the same word you'll find in Matthew 26, 37, where Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane as he looked ahead to the cross. And it says that Jesus was in such agony and distress that he was literally sweating drops of blood. This is Peter. 
He says, it's like you're in a press, being pressed out and the blood is running out. He says, I understand the pressure and the suffering. But he says, as you think in terms of the suffering you're facing, remember the suffering of Jesus Christ, the one who said, if it's possible, God, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus knew he had to go through the crucifixion. He had to go through the cross in order to save us. And he willingly did so. And as, as I'm thinking about this, and I, and I talk to Christians in our day who are discouraged about all that's happening in the world around us, I think one of the things that is causing such great distress for some believers is they bought into this health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine. If you're not familiar with the health, wealth, prosperity doctrine, it essentially says that, well, when you become a believer, everything is great. Uh, God is just going to shower blessings on you, sow a seed, reap a thousand, be faithful. God's going to make your life, you know, just luxurious and everything will be great. Friends, that is not at all what the Bible says. Last week, you'll remember, we saw where we were told that those who seek to live godly lives will be persecuted. Not maybe, it says you will be persecuted. There is going to be suffering in this world. And what Peter is telling us is none of this takes God by surprise. Some people get discouraged and they say, well, I thought God was in control, but I guess he's powerless. I guess he's really not in control. Uh, Because they've heard and believed bad theology. Peter says, let me tell you about the world. Let me tell you about suffering. It's going to happen to Christians. And God is going to use it, and he's using it for his glory. And he's using it to refine and prepare you and me for what he calls us to do. In verse 6, he describes this process that he takes the saints through to refine and prepare them. And he uses uh, the word in verse 6 of various trials. The the Greek word used literally means uh, multicolored. What he says is there is a full spectrum of suffering. And you're going, oh, Roger, keep encouraging me. This is just so great, right? Well, it is great because God is not taken by surprise. God is in control. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to take every one of us through the same set of trials. Remember, it's multicolored. You can read uh, the book of Job in the Old Testament. Here was a righteous man who went through all kinds of suffering and trials. You can look at the scattered saints Peter's writing to. They were going through all kinds of suffering and trials. But it doesn't mean everybody goes through the same suffering and trials. As Peter is writing this book... I told you earlier that God recommissioned him three times. We find that in John chapter 21. When Jesus appeared to Peter again and he told him, you know, tend my sheep, and and he was recommissioning Peter. As you keep reading through John 21, you'll find where there was a point where Jesus said to Peter, hey, Peter, let me tell you what's coming. You're going to die. He says, you're going to go through suffering and trial. In John 21, 18, he says, there is going to come a time where you will, you will have your hands stretched out. You will be girded up. People will take you where you don't want to go. And what that was was a prophecy of the coming crucifixion that Jesus said Peter would go through. And Peter was crucified for his faith in Rome. Historians tell us Peter was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior Jesus did. And as Peter was being told, Peter, you're going to suffer, you're going to die. John, the beloved disciple, was also there. And Peter, hearing how he was going to die, looks over at John and says, what about him? Remember that? And Jesus says, Peter, that's not for you to know. It's none of your business. 
John was the only disciple who didn't get martyred for his faith. He died in exile on the Isle of Patmos. By the standards of the other disciples that went through, he, he didn't go through the same level of suffering as they did. And what God says is not every one of us will go through the same set of trials and circumstances. But he says as a believer in Christ, you will go through times of refining. God will be doing things uh, to you to make you more usable. The word translated as trials here literally means temptations or a test. The same word is found in 1 Corinthians 10.13 where it says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, it says, He will provide the way of escape so that you can stand up under it. There are times God will bring you right to the breaking point. But friends, God has his eye on you and his hand on the dial as he's taking us through this refining process and he won't leave you in the fire one second longer than is needed. And as you think about what you're facing, uh, there's a, a illustration of a man who was shopping one day and he was walking down the aisles of the grocery store and he had his young son with him carrying one of those little hand carry baskets. And this little boy was following right behind his father and periodically the dad would put something in the basket and as he went up and down the aisles, more and more things were being put in the basket to the point this thing was getting really full and heavy. And this little boy's carrying this basket behind his dad. And there's this woman who's watching this, and she starts to feel sorry for the little boy carrying such a heavy load. And she says, well, that's a pretty heavy load for a young fellow like you, isn't it? And the boy says, don't worry, ma'am. My father knows how much I can carry. And that's what God does with us. Sometimes he brings you right to the breaking point. And you may think that uh, God has forgotten you. But as I said, he has his eye on you. He has his hand on the thermostat. And that's the illustration Peter uses next in this passage because he, he, he describes the refining process of gold. He says in verse 7 that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. What he's saying is you can, you can keep gold in the fire too long to where it actually burns up, not just the dross, but the actual metal. And he says that, that you're more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. And here's the reason that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the way an ancient goldsmith uh, knew that the gold was ready to come out of the fire is they would put the, the raw ore in and they would heat the fire up and the gold would begin to liquefy and something called the slag or the dross would, would float to the top and that would be scraped off and they would keep the gold in there until they could see their face reflected in the metal. And once the goldsmith could see their face in the metal, they knew it was ready to come out of the fire. And this is what God does with us. As Peter describes these trials that are purifying us, uh, I want you to remember earlier in Romans 8.30, we, we saw how God had this completed process where we go home to heaven and we're glorified. But if you read the two verses right before that in Romans 8, 28 and 29, this is what it tells us there because it describes that process. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Have you ever quoted that to somebody, right? Somebody's going through tough times. Oh, well, God's going to use this for good. 
But we stop there too much and we forget to finish the reason for the verse because it tells us literally the purpose. It says, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what is his purpose? It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. This process of refining is so that God sees his face reflected in us. He says, you look like my son. You've been made like my son. When you conform something, it's like pushing Play-Doh or putty into a mold of a cross. And he says, you become like my son. You're conformed. You look like Jesus. And while it doesn't make the trials we face any easier, Peter says, we get to rejoice when we understand the purpose that we are being made more Christ-like and that God is going to use us in ways because of the refining uh, process that he's taken us through. There was a, a man who was walking uh, through the backwoods of a forest. He was hiking along, backpacking, and he came out uh, by a river where there was a logging area. And as he came out, he was watching this logging operation that was going on, and he was fascinated by what he saw because there was a lumberjack who was there on the edge of the shore, kind of standing out on a little point, and he had a long pole, one of these pikes that has a hook on the end. And as the logs are floating by that are being cut further up the mountain and they're coming down the river, periodically this lumberjack would, would stab one of the poles and he, one of the logs floating by and he would maneuver it over into this little side area. And there were just a few logs over here, but there were hundreds that were floating by down river. And this backpacker was curious as he saw this and he said to the lumberjack, he said, sir, what are you doing? Um, why, why are you picking out those few logs, but you're letting all those other ones go by? And Lumberjack tells him, he says, well, I, I know to you all the trees look alike. He said, but as I look at them, I can recognize a few of them that are quite different. And he said, the ones that I let pass by are the trees that grew in the valley. He said, because they were sheltered from the storms and the winds, uh, they have a very coarse grain. And he said, but these few that I'm pulling aside, these are trees that come from high up on the mountain. They've been exposed to the wind and the storms. And, and because of that, as they've been buffeted by the storms, they have a very fine grain. And he said, these trees are too valuable to be used for just anything. They're, they're reserved for choice work. And friends, some of you look at friends or others who have been living in a valley type of scenario. And you're saying their life has been easy while yours has been hard. And you're longing for their life. Or you're saying, why is God letting you face these storm winds where you're buffeted and going through trial and, and, and trouble after one after another? And what God says is, I'm preparing you for choice work. And this is the, what Peter is telling these Christians. He says that being a believer doesn't mean the sun always shines on you. It doesn't mean life is going to be easy for God's saints. In fact, as we go through Peter a little later in this book, we'll read in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18, where he says Christians will suffer often for doing good. And we say, how does that work? Why does a believer suffer for doing good? And then as we'll read in 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Love what Chuck Swindoll says about that verse. He says, it's interesting that being surprised is usually our first response. 
If, however, we view life as a schoolroom and God as the instructor, it should come as no surprise when we encounter pop quizzes and periodic examinations. Tests, he says, are not strange when we're involved in the pursuit of an educational degree. Neither are they strange when pursuing a curriculum of Christ-likeness. Christians, we need to understand God has us going through school and he's testing us and he's refining us and he's preparing us for his choice work where he's conforming us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, so that he can use us for even greater things in the times in which we live. And as we go through difficult things, Peter reminds us in verse six, he says the encouragement is it's just for a little while. It's just for a little while. We may have up to 100 years here on earth, and then comes eternity. The Apostle Paul said something similar as he went through suffering in his own life. You can read 2 Corinthians four seventeen through 18, and he says, For momentary, light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are not seen... For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God says it's so easy to focus right here, what's on right in front of us, and say, I don't like this, God. If, if I were to open up a puzzle box and, and, and dig through the pieces and I were to pull out a black jagged piece of a puzzle and I were to hand it to you and say, here, this is, this is for you. You're going to look at that and say, this is ugly. It's, it's dark, it's jagged. Uh, I don't like this piece, I don't want it. But if I said, you need to hold on to that piece because then I showed you the picture on the box and I said, see this dark area right here? Without that piece of the puzzle, the picture would not be complete. And that's what God does with us. He says, there are gonna be dark, jagged pieces of the puzzle that I hand you. And you may not understand it because in the moment as you look at it, all you can say is, I don't understand. I don't know where this goes. I just don't like it and I don't want it. But God says without that peace, it's it's, it's not going to be complete. And if you're saying, but Roger, I, I don't like the way God works. I don't like the puzzle, the picture he's working off of. Can I point you to the cross? Because when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, friends, there was no darker, more jagged, black piece of a puzzle that made no sense. I mean, who would think that the God of heaven would leave his throne to come to earth, that the creator would become a part of the creation, that he would walk among us and he would go through not only the limitations of life, but the sufferings he faced as he was beaten and spit upon and mocked and ultimately killed in the cruelest way of his day. Why? Because God said, I have the picture. And I know my plan of redemption is that my son has to die in order to save you. His blood has to be spilled so he can wash away your sins when you accept his gift of grace by faith. God loved you and me so much that that's what he did for us. And this is what Peter is talking about as he says in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, when he says, and though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says, I've seen the resurrected Lord. I I have seen the nail scars in his hands and feet and the hole in his side. I was there 
as he walked with me, as he talked with me, as he told Thomas, be not unbelieving, but put your fingers in the holes in your hand in my side. Peter says, I've seen Jesus. I, I understand that he's alive. You haven't. I haven't. But he says, by faith, we know he's alive. We have evidence and eyewitness testimony. It's not blind faith. And because we have believed in him, it says we are saved and we have salvation. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have the gift of eternal life. If you've never accepted God's gift to you of grace, I invite you to do so, to acknowledge you're a sinner, to say to him, Jesus, I need your death as the payment in my place. I accept your death. I believe you're who you said you are, the son of God who died for my sins and conquered sin and death by rising from the dead. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And he invites us to accept that gift of grace. And he says, when we do, It should cause us to greatly rejoice, so much so that he says we cannot even express the joy we have. I want to end with this illustration. As you think in terms of the joy God says we should have when we recognize the the payment for our sins has been made, that the account has been closed, I want you to think for a moment about what you owe in this world, about the mortgage on your home, about student loans you might have, about medical or dental bills, about utility bills, about land maybe you've you've purchased, whatever it is that you owe to anybody, the loans on your cars, your credit cards, business debts, anything you owe to to anybody. Imagine that a billionaire were standing here today and and he or she said to you, I want to pay off 100% of your debts. I'm not only going to pay in full everything you owe, but I'm going to set up a bank account for you that has unlimited resources at your disposal for the future. Would you be happy? Could you contain your joy? Yeah. (laughs) Some of you are, right? Amen, preacher. I mean, really? If you came up here and you put every single bill, every single thing you owed, and I said it's covered 100%, paid in full, would you be happy? Yeah. Woohoo! You know? (laughs) Praise God. I'm free. I'm clear. I'm set free. Friends, we have something even better. Jesus Christ said, You owed a penalty of death. I owed a penalty of death for my sins. We owed a penalty we could not pay. And Jesus came and he paid it in full. He went to the cross. He died for you and me. He covered the cost of our salvation. And he says, it is a gift to you. All you have to do is acknowledge by faith that you're a sinner and I'm your savior, that my blood washes away your sins, that you accept that gift of grace. Remember Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. God offers you that gift of eternal life today. And while we're going through hard things in this world, Peter says all we have to do is look ahead to what is to come about our inheritance that is safe and secure, that is garrisoned about not only what God has for us, but we ourselves as believers as he takes us through the hard things in this world. If you've never received God's gift of grace and eternal life, again, I invite you to do so today, to say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I know you sent your son Jesus to die for me and I accept his death in my place. 
Today, God, I thank you for welcoming me into your family, for making me a son or a daughter of yours, for giving me an inheritance where I will be adopted into your family and with you for all eternity. And for the rest of us who have already done so, Peter says we can rejoice, we can praise God for his great mercy, and we can rest in the storm knowing we're safe and secure in the hands of our Savior. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we want to say thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the security we have in you. God, we thank you for the gift of new life you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for the promise that we have that once we come to you, that you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord, as we face those tough times, as we go through the fire, we thank you that you are refining and preparing us so that we can be more like your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Would you help us, God, to hold fast to you, to walk with you in faith through these things and to be used by you in whatever manner you choose for your glory. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. May God bless you. May God use you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You're dismissed.